0: Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, March 18th, 2021, and I am thrilled that we are here together. Thank you very, very much for joining. Tonight I'd like to share three pieces. The first two relate to this week's Torah portion and the third will relate to Pesach. By Yikra El Moshe, our Parsha begins the Parsha Vayikra and the book of Vayikra, the third book of the Torah, Vayikra el Moshe, God called out to Moshe, Vayadaber Hashem Elov, and God spoke to Moshe, Meohel Moed, from the tent of meeting, from the Mishkan, the sanctuary. Now, before I go further, we know what it is that God spoke to Moshe because that's in the next verse that we didn't get to yet. God spoke to Moshe the laws about the karbanos, the sacrifices that is going to make up the bulk of our parsha. But let me focus just on one little word. One more time from the beginning: Va'yikra el Moshe, God called to Moshe. Va'yidaber and God spoke to Moshe from the tent of meeting, Laymor, saying. This word, leymor, is very, very common, frequently used in the Torah. We usually translate it as saying. But let me ask you a question. What does it actually mean? What what would be missing if we did not have that word? Vayikreo Moshe, God called to Moshe and spoke to him from the Mishkan. These are the commandments that you should command the Jewish people about the sacrifices. That makes perfect sense. What does it mean God called to Moshe and spoke to Moshe saying these are the commandments? It just seems like an unnecessary word that has no actual meaning. But in fact, our rabbis teach us a very, very important meaning of this word. The Talmud says, How do you know that if someone tells you something, you are not allowed to repeat that. Until the person says to you, you may repeat this. How do you know that that is true? Because of our Possek, Shinemar. saying means. <laughs> God said to Moshe, I'm giving you permission to share what I'm saying. Had God not used that word, lamor, Moshe would not have been permitted to share what God had told them, even though what God told him clearly was meant for the Jewish people because it's the commandments about how to offer the sacrifices. Still, even though it's obvious from the context that Moshe is supposed to say these words to the Jewish people, Moshe would not have been allowed to until God says, lay I give you permission to share these words. This is the basis of confidentiality in Jewish law. And the understanding of confidentiality in Jewish law is that everything is confidential. Anything that a person says to you is confidential until they explicitly say to you, I give you permission to share it. This is part of a larger construct based on a different Pasuk later in the Book of Ayikra the Torah says in the Parsh of Kedoshim, Lo Selech Rochil Ba Mecha. Do not be a talebearer among your people. Do not say Loshon Hara. Don't speak negatively about other people. Now, it's very important to keep in mind that when it comes to negative speech, there are two separate prohibitions in the Torah. One is called Rochilus, which means slander. To say something negative about another person that is false. That's. I'm sorry, that's libel. That's saying something false about another person. That's prohibited. L'shon hara, which literally means negative speech, is when you say something negative about another person and it's true. A person could say, but but it's true, but it's true. What's wrong with that? L'se'lech ba the Torah says, do not be one who says negative things about others, even when it is true. Why? Why should there be such a prohibition? So the Sefer Achinach, Rabbi Aharon of Barcelona, explains because God wants good for human beings. And therefore, God commanded us in this prohibition against Lashon hara in order that there should be peace among us because Lashon Hara saying negative things about others, I'm talking about when it's true. It's a cause of contention and quarrel, incredible. So what the Torah is saying with this prohibition is that keeping peace, not saying things that cause disagreements and arguments is more important than telling the truth. Peace is more important than truth. Except, let me go back to the Pasuk that I quoted before. This is in the Parsh of bamecha. Do not be a talebearer among your people. Do not say L'Shona Don't speak negatively about another person when it is true, when what you're saying is true, but the verse continues al Do not stand idly by when the blood of your brother is being spilled. Lo Samod is a requirement that if I see someone attacking, about to attack a potential victim, and I have the ability to intercede to save the intended victim from harm, I should not stand idly by and let it happen. I should intervene if I am able to. If keeping silent may cause harm to someone else, then the obligation of confidentiality no longer applies. I am obligated to break confidentiality in order to prevent harm to a potential victim. And this can lead to a serious conflict between Jewish law and secular law. Secular law, Canada, United States, England, generally assumes that there is no right to confidentiality if you say something to me, you have no right to assume or to insist that I keep it confidential. We're talking about when it's true. Unless the information that you share is privileged. So before I go any further, according to Jewish law, the default is that everything is covered with confidentiality unless it is explicitly given permission to be revealed in secular law the default is that there's no such promise of confidentiality unless it's one of the in one of the categories that is specifically privileged to remain confidential this idea of a privileged conversation privileged information comes from the 1800s in England and it originated with the clergy penitent privilege. Now that's based on the Catholic practice of confession. In that religion, a person would go to a priest and confess their sins. But according to the church, a priest must maintain the confidentiality of what he hears a person confessing under all circumstances no exceptions even if a person confesses to a crime according to the church the priest is not allowed to reveal even if a person confesses they are about to commit a crime the priest is not allowed to reveal that so In England the law became that there was a benefit to society for people religious Catholics to be able to confess to a priest and the only way they're going to do so is if they can rely on the fact that the priest will never be obligated according to secular law to reveal what he has heard and therefore that conversation is privileged meaning The confidentiality is intact. Gradually, this idea of privilege was extended to clergy of other religions and to other relationships. So for example, we're familiar today with lawyer-client privilege, with doctor-patient privilege, with spousal privilege, which means that those are conversations where what is said remains confidential. Now, there are details and exceptions, but the underlying idea of having certain types of conversations privileged is that society is better off when a person can speak freely to a rabbi, to a lawyer, to a doctor, to a spouse, and know that what they say cannot be revealed and cannot be coerced to be revealed by a secular court. In other words, fostering these relationships is better for society than knowing and sharing the truth, whatever that is. But here's the problem. What happens If, for example, a rabbi is told that someone may harm someone else, the information is privileged according to secular law and cannot be revealed. But according to Jewish law, (coughs) excuse me, lo samuel Adam Reyacha will apply, don't stand idly by and let someone else be hurt. I would be required to reveal that. Now that is a serious issue and it needs to be examined in every case individually. However, Lo Samod Al don't stand idly by when someone else may be harmed has a very important limitation. So let's start with an extreme case. The Talmud discusses the following case. The Talmud says, according to the Torah, if I see someone running after another with the intent to, God forbid, kill them, and I have the ability to intervene so that the victim is not harmed, the intended victim is not harmed, I am obligated to do so, and the Talmud says, even if it requires me to kill, to take the life of the aggressor, if that's the only way that I can stop this person, innocent person from being hurt, that is part of the mitzvah. In other words, an aggressor sacrifices his or her right to Uh, even to a trial. If a person is in the act of aggressing against someone else, I have the obligation, if I'm able to, to stop it, even if it includes taking the life of the aggressor. Okay, That's that's a pretty amazing thing. However, the Talmud goes one step further. The Talmud says that only applies when the only way to stop the aggression is by taking the life of the aggressor what if i could wound the aggressor and that would stop the attack now obviously this is a hypothetical because you know you're in the middle of a of a crisis uh you know If you're an expert marksman, you might be able to say uh, don't shoot to kill, but shoot to wound and to stop the attack. Okay, but if you're not an expert marksman, maybe you don't have the uh, expertise, the ability to differentiate. But uh, hypothetically, if you have the ability to stop the attack, you are required to use the least amount of force, the least amount of intervention. And if you could have used a lesser amount of intervention, but you use more force, then you're accountable. Then you are responsible for what you did. And although this is an example in a very, very serious case, it applies even in less serious cases like negative speech. The person who is most identified with and most responsible for our understanding of the rules and the laws about prohibiting negative speech is the Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan of Radin. The Chafetz Chaim was the name of a work that he wrote that is part of a line from the Talmud. Who is it that desires life? Chafetz Chaim desires life. How do you enjoy life? To be careful about not speaking negatively about others. And so he wrote this work, very detailed work to explain it. And the Chavetz discusses a concept called lashon Hara, negative speech, we're talking about when it's true, negative speech, litoelis for a constructive purpose. In other words, if I need to say something negative about a person, in order to prevent harm to someone else that is a constructive purpose that allows me to say lashon hara in other words normally lashon hara saying something negative but true is prohibited but there is an exception when it is latoelis for a constructive purpose however it's limited like we saw in the talmud i can only say the least amount the least intrusive that will get the job done, that will protect the intended victim. So the Chavetz Chaim explains uh, the following guidelines. And these are very, very practical guidelines. Number one, if you're gonna say something negative in order to protect someone else, don't exaggerate. You have to say what it is that you're fearful of, but you can't dramatize Or exaggerate the situation and you can't determine how the intended victim is going to respond the intended victim might say it's not a problem I'm not worried about it Uh, it's not gonna harm me I'll protect myself you don't get to make that judgment you simply have to provide the facts that you know number two The negative information that you're going to share has got to be relevant to the situation. Let's say, for example, someone is applying for a job. And you know that the person who's applying is not such an honest person. Well, you have an obligation to tell the potential employer, so that they don't get stuck with an employee that is dishonest. What happens if what is negative about this person is not related to what they're going to be doing for the employer? What happens if, uh, what you know that is negative about them is, um, their apartment is messy. Okay. Their apartment is messy, but it's not really related to how well they're going to be able to do their job, whatever that is. If it's not relevant to the decision that's being made, I have no right to share that information. The Chafetz Chaim does say that I don't need to be certain about the negative information that I share. It could be based on hearsay as long as I report it as hearsay. I say to a person, listen, I don't know this for sure. I don't know this firsthand, but I heard such a thing and you should be careful about it. the next step in the guidelines is, I have to have a reasonable judgment that what I'm going to say to this person will be part of their decision-making process. If I know that a certain person has already made up their mind and they're not gonna change it based on what I say, then I'm not allowed to say anything because in that situation, I won't be saving someone from potential harm. I have no right to say anything. And if I can possibly arrange that the information should be shared without me having to say it, that's always preferable. Again, the least amount of intervention, the least amount of whatever it is that I have to do or say. If I can find some other way for the person to learn this information and protect themselves, I have to do that. So the guidelines of the Chabetz Chaim are meant to ensure that yes, the prohibition against speaking negatively about someone else has a limitation when another party might be harmed, but it's limited to saying the least amount in the most inconspicuous manner in order to get the job done. Now, clearly there are gonna be gray areas in how to apply these guidelines, these standards. And if you are in doubt, the best suggestion is to check with an objective person who is an expert in these rules and these laws. But I just want to finish this section with a pasuk, a verse from the prophet Zechariah. Ha'emes <speaking> v'ha-shalom <in> havu. <Hebrew> we are told by God to love truth and peace. It's not so easy. It's actually very, very hard to love both truth and peace because often they are in conflict with each other. How do you balance the two? It's not easy. But the first verse of our Parsha begins the discussion, of the right to confidentiality, and then we've got to figure out when is there an exception that allows saying something. Without the exception, the default is we have to always protect confidentiality. Okay. Let me share a second topic. Every time we pray, every time we stand for the Amidah, the Shemona we say the following words every single time. In the paragraph that starts with the words Ritse, we say, We say to God, please return the service to you, to your holy abode, to your temple. In other words, we pray that what we read from the Torah this Shabbos by Yikra, which is about sacrifices and rituals in the temple, in the Mishkan, in the sanctuary, what we read this Shabbos is not only a description of the sacrifices and rituals in the past, but it is what we want to reinstate now as soon as it is possible because we're asking God to bring it back, bring back what we read about in our Parsha Vayikra, bring it back to your holy temple. The question is, do we really want this? Do we really want to institute animal sacrifices in Jerusalem now? as described in our Parsha. So my answer would be, yes, but. Yes, this is our belief and our conviction, but we need to understand Carbonos much more deeply and in much greater detail. First, a large part of rebuilding the Beit HaMikdash the holy temple in Jerusalem does not involve sacrifices at all it is intended to be and hopefully will be the gathering place of the entire Jewish people the Torah commands that for the three festivals Pesach Shavuos and Sukkos every single Jewish person man woman and child would travel to Jerusalem to be together for the holiday it is a focal point a gathering place that allows for a sense of unity and oneness among the Jewish people. Also, it is a place where open miracles occur on a daily basis, attesting to God's presence. We know that this happened when the base of was standing. Presumably the same will take place when it is rebuilt, that we will have this open, clear awareness of God's presence. However, it is unavoidable that a main component was karbanos, animal sacrifices. And there are two fundamental questions that we need to grapple with. The first is a moral question. Cruelty to animals, which is prohibited according to the Torah. How can killing animals be an act of holiness and the second question is philosophical and in fact this philosophical question is asked by none other than God himself through the words of the prophet Yishayahu God says to the, to the prophet Yeshayahu, Isaiah why do I need all these uh, numerous sacrifices Why does God need our sacrifices? What does he do with our sacrifices? How how do we understand a God that wants us to give something to him? How does that make any sense? So let's begin to address the moral question. First, let's state the Torah's permission to take the life of kosher animals for food, that is a basic assumption that we need to clarify before going any further. And the Torah also commands that when that is done, it must be done in a manner that causes the least amount of pain and suffering to the animal as possible. That was practiced with the carbonos as it is practiced today in general now there are exceptions to this this is an overgeneralization but in general the edible parts of the animal were eaten either by the kohane who was officiating or and or the owner who brought the carbon, who brought the animal It was eaten. The parts that were placed on the altar and burned, again, there are exceptions to this. This is a bit of an overgeneralization, but in general, what was put on the altar to burn were those parts of the animal that were not edible. So in other words, the karbonos were a system where kohanim, the priests who worked in the temple, were supported, it was part of their income, it was how they fed themselves and their families. And it also provided Jews who brought a sacrifice to be able to take that home and to eat that in a sanctified manner. For example, the Karban Pesach, the Paschal offering. So on the afternoon before Pesach, Every family would gather together and they would bring an animal. It would be offered as a sacrifice in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. They would take the animal home after it had been, uh, um, the, the, the uh, rituals had been performed, and it would be roasted over an open fire, and that was the Seder meal. That's, that's what you serve for dinner. In a sense, when we today make a bracha before eating, We say a blessing before we eat something we are similarly turning a physical act into a spiritual act and in general that is what the sacrifice is intended to do they turned a physical act of eating into a sanctified act by having offered it as a carbon first okay that's a beginning of an understanding of the moral issue. not There's more to say about it, but that's the beginning of the discussion. Let's go to the philosophical question. So I'd like to share with you my understanding of the approach of the Ramban, Nachmanides, in his discussion of this subject. <clears throat> and again, tonight I want to simplify. It's a bit of an oversimplification but i want to discuss just one carbon the carbon khatas the sin offering the sin sacrifice which is the predominant subject of our parsha so the question is if i commit a sin how is god appeased by my sacrificing an animal what what does that do for god that leads to some kind of rectification of the sin that I perform that's the philosophical question so a sin can be one of three types for example let's say a person um, eats chametz on Pesach that's a sin that's a prohibition so There is a sin called mazed, mazed means a willful sin. That means I know this is prohibited. I know God doesn't want me to do this. I'm going to do it because I want to rebel against God because I want to defy what God is commanding. That is an open act of rebellion against God. That's called mazed intentional purposeful rebellious at the other extreme is Ones. Ones means it was completely against my will. Uh, To make up an example, uh, let's say a person bought uh, a product that was kosher for Pesach, and they check the package, and it says kosher for Pesach, and they check all the alerts, and there was no alert that there was any problem, and after Pesach, there's an announcement from the company, ah, we're very sorry, there was actually chametz, in that product, I didn't do anything wrong. I, I, I looked for the kosher for basic symbol. I looked to make sure that there was no mistake. I did everything I possibly could have done, and I'm completely without any fault. That's called onus. In the middle is a category called shogeg. Shogeg means inadvertent, or negligent, or accidental. For example, uh, I was uh, in IGA and uh, I bought a product. I thought it was kosher for Pesach, but I, I, I forgot to look for the symbol. I thought I saw the symbol, but it wasn't really the symbol. And it turns out that it was uh, prohibited on, on Pesach. I didn't mean to eat chametz on Pesach. It was not a willful sin, but I wasn't careful enough. I didn't look carefully enough. I wasn't paying enough attention. Three different categories of sins. Mazid, a person who wants to rebel against God, who knows that this is wrong and wants to do something against God's will, that person is incorrigible. That person is actively rebelling against God. A carbon, a sacrifice does not help. There is no carbon available for a person to commit such a sin. If a person did a sin b'ones, they're completely without fault. They did nothing wrong. They don't need any atonement. They don't need any forgiveness. Of course, if you find out after Pesach that something that you ate was actually chametz, yes, of course, I would feel very bad, but I didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't negligent. I didn't want to do this. It wasn't even an accident on my part. It was. Compl- I'm completely blameless. There is no atonement, no forgiveness that I need because I didn't do anything wrong. Shogig is a person who did something wrong, but they did not intend to do it wrong. They were negligent. It was an accident. There is hope for rehabilitation. Shogig is this category where a person could learn to be more careful. A person could learn to be more aware. And that's the purpose of a Karban. In general, almost exclusively, a Karban chatas, a sin sacrifice, is only for a sin that is committed beshoge, inadvertently. So I want you to imagine the following frightening scenario. Now, please, I want to be very, very clear. What I'm going to say now is purely hypothetical. Don't do this. Don't think about doing this. I just want you to imagine it for the sake of understanding the idea. Consider the following hypothetical scenario. You have a child and the child drinks poison. You rush to the hospital. The hospital, the doctors work on the child, and thank God the child recovers. Okay? But you feel that the child needs to learn a lesson. It's not a punishment, because the child didn't want to do something that was wrong, but the, the problem is you can get hurt from poison even if you didn't mean to do it, even without any negative intent. So, the child needs to learn to be more careful. You need the child to learn this. You want to teach the child a lesson that the child will never forget. So, here's what you do, again, purely hypothetical. You take a plant and you put the plant in the child's room. Then you take some of the poison that the child drank accident and you pour it onto the plant and the child watches what happens to the plant as it withers and dies, that child will be left with a lifelong indelible lesson. Obviously to do such a thing would be terrifying to a child, traumatizing, and I don't suggest you ever do this. This is purely hypothetical, never, never do this. But I use this scenario just to convey the following idea. A person, an adult, has done a sin, beshogeik. They were careless, they weren't, they didn't take it so seriously, They were negligent. They need to learn a lesson. They need to learn that the effects of an action, even without intent to sin, can be very, very harmful. So a person brings a karbon, a sacrifice. The first thing that happens when a person brings a karbon hatas, a sin sacrifice, is a person performs a ritual called smicha, which means I rest my hands on the animal in other words i express my identification with this animal and while i do that i'm required to go through the process of teshuva of repentance i have to confess my sin i have to commit not to repeat the sin it has to be an earnest genuine act of repentance And then the carbon is sacrificed. And everything that happens to that animal should happen to me because of what I did. But God does not want that to happen. God doesn't want us to suffer. God doesn't want us to be distant because of our sins. God wants to bring us back. God wants to bring us closer. That's what a karban is from the word karav to come closer. A karban is God's way of saying, learn this lesson to be more careful, to be more attentive, to take the commandments more seriously. For your own sake, come closer to me, God says. A carbon is a way to change your life. Now, by the way, no one can coerce you to bring a carbon. Witnesses are not required. It's not a judicial action that you are found guilty and you have to bring this sacrifice. It's purely your own desire to come closer to God after you recognize that you have committed an act of negligence or carelessness. Now, if it's not going to change your life, then a carbon is meaningless. If you don't want to come closer to God, meaning you were doing it as an act of rebellion, so you don't want to come closer to God, or if you don't need to come closer to God because you did nothing wrong it was ones, then there's no carbon that is offered in those cases if you are not going to let the experience of offering a carbon change your life then then it's meaningless that's when God said, Yamarashem, why are you offering so many sacrifices to me? Lo so Shav, don't continue to bring offerings that are meaningless. What the prophet Yeshayahu was c- complaining about is that people develop the attitude, uh, carbon is a payoff, it's a bribe. You give a little bribe to God, he'll forgive you for what it is whatever it is you did wrong do whatever you want and bring a carbon and everything's going to be okay. That's the kind of sacrifice God detests. Because when Jews began to offer sacrifices like this, God decided we were no longer entitled to have a base of HaMigdash, to have a holy temple, to have sacrifices because we were making them meaningless. Perhaps when we are able to do it properly and we are able to use it to truly transform our lives, perhaps then we will get it back. Now, this category of Shogeg receives a lot of attention in Jewish law because this is a person with the potential to transform this is a person who has the potential to refine their character, to become a better person. And that's what the Torah wants. That's the point. God wants us to transform. God wants us to grow to be better. And that's why so much attention is given to this category of shogeg. And that growth that refinement of character is possible. It is a reality. So today we do not have carbonos. We don't have sacrifices, but we do have the inspiration of those who practice this refinement and show us that it's possible. Let me share with you a story. I've shared with some of you before a number of stories about Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Orbach, who was a great, great scholar who lived in Jerusalem, but who was known for this tremendous refinement of character and sensitivity. At the same time as he was, perhaps the world's or one of the world's recognized authorities in Jewish law it once happened that there was a married couple living in Jerusalem and they had a baby boy. And after the baby was born, the couple had a disagreement. The disagreement was what they should name the baby. The father wanted to name the baby Yohonah son. son. It's a biblical name. The mother said, "No, we cannot name the baby Yehona's son. That name is cursed." "What do you mean it's cursed? It's a name in the Bible, it's a name in the Torah." "It's cursed because there was a neighbor upstairs in the apartment above them that Nebuch, they had an 8-year-old boy that was named Jehoshun and the and the boy passed away, God forbid." So the mother says, the name's cursed. We can't name our baby. The father says that's ridiculous. I mean, (laughs) Yehonasan is a name in the Torah. (laughs) If somebody passes away at an early age under tragic circumstances, you can't say no one one is ever gonna give that name, you know, Moshe. Uh, uh, God forbid something terrible happens to a person named Moshe. So no one in the world is ever gonna use the name Moshe again? It's ridiculous. You're being superstitious. It doesn't make any sense so the husband and wife are having this argument and they decided we'll go to Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Arbach and we'll ask his advice so they went to Rosh Shlomo Zalman and they both presented their opinion and Rosh Shlomo Zalman listened to them and he said it's not a good idea to give the name Yehonasun it's not a good idea okay okay when you ask someone like Roshlomo Zaman Orbach and he gives you an answer you accept what he says that's the deal but the father just couldn't understand it because i mean you know we don't believe in superstition we don't it doesn't make any sense it's just not logical but he accepted that's what Roshlomo Zaman said so they chose another name sometime later this father happened to see Rushlomazaman. And he went over to him and said, You remember, my wife and I, we came to see you? You remember the question we asked you. If if you could please just explain to me, you don't actually believe that a name becomes cursed because somebody passed away. I mean, you don't actually believe that, do you? Rushlomazaman said, No, I, I don't believe that. So, why did you say not to give the name? Shri Shlomo Zaman said, Listen, just imagine what would happen if you would have given your son the name Yehonasan. You told me that the neighbor upstairs from you had a son, Yehonasan, that passed away at a young age. You're going to give your child the name Yehonasan. In a few years, what's going to happen? Your son is going to be outside playing your wife is going to open the window and she's going to yell out the window "Yehonasan, it's time to come in for dinner what is that woman upstairs going to think it's going to break her heart to hear those words that's why you should not name your son that's what the torah wants from us that's the kind of person the torah wants us to become That's the kind of person God believes we are capable of becoming. And that is what was hopefully achieved through the structure of the karbonos, the sacrifices. Okay, just for the last few minutes, I'd like to share with you briefly a list of leniencies for preparing for Pesach this year. The list of leniencies this year is shorter than the list last year. I am trying to reflect our situation now. So I actually sent an email earlier today with many Pesach resources and I included this list in that email. I'm only gonna to refer to the topics in a general way. The details are in that email, and if you did not receive it, you just let me know and I'll be happy to send it to you. And by the way, that email, with all of the Pesach resources together, I am updating every couple of days and sending back out with new material added to it, so there's more coming. I mentioned last year, and this applies again this year, cleaning your home for Pesach in under one hour. So I gave a lecture, a, a shiur, a class on this last year, and I've given you the link in the email. I've given you the link. You can listen to it again. That applies really every year. Because that is basic Halacha, Jewish law, about what we actually need to do to get rid of chametz. And it really should not take you more than about one hour to do your entire house. Especially this year, the anxiety and stress is still elevated over normal years, even if it's not as high as last year's hysteria. But I would strongly suggest that you follow my advice about how easy and simple cleaning for Pesach can be again in the email is the link to that lecture this also applies every year and that is the list of items that do not require any kosher for Pesach supervision so in the email I gave you several links to lists of grocery items that do not require kosher for basic supervision. Yes, they have to be in a new package, an unopened package, but I still feel that the situation with COVID in Montreal is very precarious. In fact, in just the last few days in our community, it's gotten worse, significantly worse. And so if you can reduce the number of trips out of your home, the number of trips to the grocery that is a preferable thing so if there are items that you already have again unopened and they're on these lists i advise you to make use of that we still need to have precautions in place against contact physical contact social contact and therefore although normally when we arrange to sell our chametz we come in person to for example Rabbi Alex in our shul to appoint him as our agent to sell the chametz for us that normally should be done in person this year like last year we are only doing it remotely so you could do it through email you could do it through a phone call uh, there are several different ways that you could do it it's all in the in, in the email that I sent but those arrangements must be made remotely only. If a person buys a new utensil that would need to go to the mikvah to immerse in a mikvah before using it, most of the mikvahs for utensils are still not open. And even though there are a couple that are, many people are not comfortable to go to those locations and I support not doing that this year because, again, the need for precautions is still very much in evidence. So there are several options for what to do with this situation instead of taking utensils to the mikveh first. In the email, I give you several suggestions. There are other suggestions besides what is on my list, but I believe that my suggestions are the best and the most proper suggestions, so I urge you to follow them. On Thursday of this coming week, that's a week from today, is the fast of the firstborn, and it is a custom that we have a siyum, the completion of a tractate of Talmud to celebrate in order for the firstborn not to have to fast on that day. Like last year, we will be offering a seum on Zoom. Normally a person needs to attend in person. However, this year, like last year, a person can stay at home, which is preferable, and watch it on Zoom. And even if a person does not do that, no one should be fasting this coming Thursday because, remember, on a normal year, the fast of the firstborn is Arab Pesach, the eve of Pesach. This year Arab Pesach is Shabbos. So we move it forward to Thursday. There are some authorities who say that the whole fast doesn't even exist once we're not doing it on the actual eve of Pesach. So the obligation is much less and therefore no one should be fasting on Thursday for this reason. On Friday, meaning a week from tomorrow, we will destroy chametz. It's also included in the email, the details and the time, etc., the procedure. No one should gather in groups for destroying chametz. It is necessary to maintain distance at all times. And it is very important to be extremely careful that whatever you do to destroy the chametz is done in a very safe and careful manner so as not to, God forbid, cause any harm to anyone. lastly let me mention something that i also mentioned last year some people may feel that they are not comfortable to get a haircut before pesach comes after pesach is a period of the omer Safirasa omer when we do not get haircuts they're different customs but many of us do not get a haircut until lagba omer which is in quite a distant amount of time if you are not comfortable to get a haircut before Pesach, respect that. I think that's a very wise choice right now. I would not go to get a haircut now, personally. Maybe a person would feel, if I get the vaccine and a few weeks pass and I have a certain amount of protection, maybe a person would feel that they're more comfortable to go to get a haircut. Then I'm not giving any medical advice here. I'm just. Uh, uh, supposing what a person might feel the point that I mean to say is a person would be allowed to get a haircut during the Omer period if that is the first time that they would feel comfortable for whatever reason to be able to engage in that activity now all these things that I've shared are general you may find yourself in a situation of greater need where more leniencies are called for. And please do not hesitate to ask for any situation that you encounter. That's the list of leniencies that I have for this year. I know there's some people that were hoping that the list would be a little bit longer, but that's my opinion of what I think is uh, called for this year. But again, each individual will have individual situations. So I want to thank you very much for tonight. I want to wish you a great evening, a wonderful Shabbos. We have much more to discuss in preparing for Pesach. And remember, we're going to meet next week on Wednesday night instead of Thursday night. Same login, same time, 8 p.m. And we'll have other emails and classes and uh, discussions about Pesach over the next number of days.